The night of the invasion, there's a, a large orphanage and home outside Kiev that takes in marginally parented kids, I guess you'd say. They're, they're more like social orphans where they may have parents, but they mostly live on the streets. It's very, there's a wide spectrum. It doesn't just fit the traditional Annie that we all have in our minds of what an orphanage or an orphan is. They quickly needed to evacuate. That was when we thought the Russians were just going to roll on into Kiev. So they had 150 kids to get out of there. They finally were able to wrangle a couple of buses to get the kids, and these are kids ranging in age from two to about 18. So they load the kids up, they're ripping out of town, trying to get out of Kiev. They managed to get around the Russian troop movements and were on their way towards safety. And one of the buses breaks down. They're in the middle of nowhere. It's three in the morning. There's no one around. And after about an hour, Suddenly a bus appears and the bus driver pulls up. The bus is completely empty. This isn't a micro bus. This is like a full like school bus, you know? And he says, what's going on? And he's, and they go, well, we broke down and we're desperate to get to the Polish border to get these kids to safety. He said, oh, well, just load them on in my bus. Come on in. I, I just dropped off people at the border and I was on my way back, but I'll just, we load them up. I'll take them and then we'll figure things out later. And that's what they did. Through that journey, they stopped at a gas station so the kids could use the restroom, et cetera. And suddenly two police cars show up and say, you have to get out of here right now. There's Russian troops two blocks away. And suddenly there's firing. A couple of bullets hit, hit the bus. They have to rush the kids back out. They get safely across and they take down the driver's name and the bus company. So they, you know, I can thank him later. So once they're settled, they ended up, actually, the kids all ended up in Germany. Uh, 18 hours later, they they tried to locate the, the bus company and the driver. There was no information on the internet for the bus company, and they could not find the bus driver. They looked on social media to try to thank him. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders Joining me today is the author of Hope for Ukraine. It's written by the father of an adopted Ukrainian son. It transports you into the gritty reality of war-torn Ukraine and the front lines. Kyle Duncan is a 35-year publishing veteran and a New York Times best-selling ghostwriter. The author of Hope for Ukraine, Stories of Grit and Grace from the Front Lines of War. Welcome to the show, Kyle Duncan. Thank you, Laurie. It's great to be here. And shout out to the beautiful Northwest, in particular, Seattle, Bellevue area. Love it up there. Thank you. I want to start with what brought you to write this book? That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I uh, Actually, that goes back to 2007. Uh, my wife and I, we have three biological daughters, but we uh, had felt led to adopt a little boy. <clears throat> and so, you know, my wife, who... Uh, is a little bit more spiritually attuned than I am. She just sensed God telling her uh, to adopt from Ukraine, which was kind of random. And she kept sort of hearing this in her prayer time. And long story short, we finally decided that's what we needed to do. It set us down a very interesting adventurous path of adopting a little six-year-old boy from Mariupol, 
Ukraine. And I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with that, the name of that city. It's really been the news a lot. It's one that's been horribly decimated by bombing and up to 20,000 civilians killed there. Down in the south, it's a big strategic port city, which is why it's been so strategic in the war effort and Russia's interest to take it. So yeah, those were obviously happier days. Fast forward, of course, through 2014, when the civil war broke out in the southeastern part of Ukraine, and also Russia annexed the Crimea. So there were things happening that were a little bit of a, on our radar here in the U.S., but in particular, as parents of an adopted boy from Ukraine, that became front and center for us, and we followed it very closely. And then when the war broke out, I should say when the most recent invasion from Russia happened on February 24th, I just felt kind of desperate. You know, I'm, I have a background in publishing. I'm usually on the other side of the desk uh, working with authors. But I approached a colleague, Esther Federkevich, who you can probably tell by her name, is Slavic and actually Ukrainian. And Esther and I decided to do this book. So it was really very fast. But th that's what led me. I just felt the inspiration to do a book of stories, stories that told of what actual Ukrainians on the ground were going through. So that's kind of what led us up to February 25th, 26th. And from there, we, we got a publisher on board really fast. And God just opened a bunch of doors, flew open. I mean, this process normally, Lori, for getting a book published, it's usually about a year and a half process from contract to published book. And ours took about five and a half months. And the book comes out on September 6th. So that tells you just how fast it was. That is amazing. And one of the reasons when I saw the email about your book that I really wanted to talk with you is uh, you can see behind me, the radio station, Warm 106.9, we have a thing called Teddy Bear Patrol, and now it's kind of gone national. And we just sent 10,000 teddy bears to Ukraine, oh, with the Washington Association for Ukraine. And they what they were working on gathering funds for is neonatal units to yeah. send. When she was telling us about what was going on, I, I mean, I was reduced to a bucket of tears. I could hardly even interview her. What is unique about this book? One thing I've tried to do, and, and Esther and I, is get out of the way of the stories. There's a lot of division, obviously and a lot of sadness in our country over division, no matter where you're coming from, what spectrum or what political party you're coming from. I think we can all agree, especially those of us, like I'm a man of a certain age, pushing 60. It's just the most divisive time I've ever experienced as an American. And it, it, it's very troubling. And so we really didn't want to write a political book. We're not politicians. We didn't want to write a, a piece that took a certain slant from a political view. We just wanted to go there. And I have a background in journalism, working on a magazine, uh, doing news articles and things. And I just wanted to interview people on the ground and tell their stories journalistically. So that's one thing that's unique. I think the other is that it's a very specific slice of history. We use the analogy in the book of kind of like when explorers are in the Arctic and they take an ice sample of a glacier and they can drill down. They can go back like thousands of years you're only getting a small, a few, you know, inches across a uh, cross section of one very specific period in that history of that huge glacier. And so that's kind of the, the word picture I use for this book. We took a snapshot 
And so these stories are all extracted. Basically, I was in Poland and Western Ukraine from late March to about mid-April, only about a month after the invasion. So it's a very specific time in history, a snapshot of what was going on, but in a larger context with the largest ground war that's happened in Europe since World War II. And that's not to downplay horrible conflicts all over, still going on in places like Syria and Yemen, places in Africa, Mali, et cetera. But in Europe, yeah, this this is the largest land war since, since World War II, 80, 80 years. Well, you mentioned when civil war broke out first, and I think that's what a lot of people didn't realize. They just thought just this year, bam, there was a war. Yes. So in 2014, but yeah, and that civil war was in the southeast of the country, which is very industry rich and a lot of mining, a lot of value to it. You know, wars are usually fought over minerals, water and resources, you know, that hasn't changed in thousands of years. It's a part of Ukraine, to be fair, has a lot of Russian speakers and a lot of Russian immigrants. It is probably arguably the most Russian, quote unquote, part of Ukraine, where Russian is the primary language that's spoken. And so there was a lot of sympathy there and a lot of nostalgia, even for the USSR days. I look forward to reading it because there is something about stories that change our life. And I think the fact that You're going in there with a background because journalists have to tell stories without agenda and that, you know, you have a child that is from there. Tell me a little bit about why this is relevant. When you go into something like this, an assignment, you know, I I obviously had a, a goal of collecting as many stories as possible. A lot of the stories I did collect when I was there, I would say half of them when I was over there. And then the other half is just, you know, the miracle of modern technology. And I was able to do Zoom calls with people in places like Kiev and Mikolaev and, and Chernaev, cities that are were at the time and are still under bombardment. It was overwhelming. I went in with a professional mind. You come to work today and you have to interview me and you've got your professional hat on, but I'm sure there's some interviews that just crack through the professional veneer. And that's what happened with me. Just the way God orchestrated the whole thing. And I was able to hire uh, a young Polish man of about 23 who ended up being my everything, my driver, translator, speaks four languages. You know, it was incredible how that came to be. And then as we traveled around, and I think through my contacts, I keep in touch with a lot of people in Ukraine, especially in the adoption profession. And I have friends in Ukraine who do that. Some of the leads I had going in were with sort of adoption situations. And we heard stories, Lori, Literally, the police who were helping in certain situations used the phrase, this is a miracle. And we have no idea where these people were coming from spiritually, you know, whether they were Christian or not Christian, if they had any faith. But just incredible stories of escape and rescue. If you'd like, I could share one or two of those. But but to answer your question, it, it changed me for life. And I can't say that about all the projects I've worked on. I would love it if you shared a story. Yeah. I'm all about the stories. I'll tell you one. Um, I attend a church here in North County, San Diego, and our pastor told this story a couple of days. The Sunday after the invasion, he kind of scrapped his message, and we just focused on praying for Ukraine. And that was really uh, quite the inspiration for me. I'll give a shout out to Benji Horning, my pastor at, at Light Church here in Encinitas. But Benji told a story, a true story, and basically this is it. The night of the invasion, there's a, a large orphanage and home outside Kiev that takes in marginally parented 
kids, I guess you'd say. They're, they're more like social adopt orphans where they may have parents, but they mostly live on the streets. It's very, there's a wide spectrum. It doesn't just fit the traditional Annie that we all have in our minds of what an orphanage or an orphan is. They quickly needed to evacuate. That was when we thought the Russians were just going to roll on into Kiev. So they had 150 kids to get out of there. They finally were able to wrangle a couple of buses to get the kids. And these are kids ranging in age from two to about 18. So they load the kids up. They're ripping out of town, trying to get out of Kiev. They managed to get around the Russian troop movements and were on their way towards safety. And one of the buses breaks down. They're in the middle of nowhere. It's three in the morning. There's no one around. And after about an hour, suddenly a bus appears and the bus driver pulls up. The bus is completely empty. This isn't a micro bus. This is like a full like school bus, you know? And he says, what's going on? And, he's, and they go, well, we broke down and we're desperate to get to the Polish border to get these kids to safety. He said, oh, well, just load them on in my bus. Come on in. I, I just dropped off people at the border and I was on my way back, but I'll just, we load them up. I'll take them and then we'll figure things out later. And that's what they did. Through that journey, they stopped at a gas station so the kids could use the restroom, et cetera. And suddenly two police cars show up and say, you have to get out of here right now. There's Russian troops two blocks away. And suddenly there's firing, a couple bullets hit, hit the bus. They have to rush the kids back out. They get safely across and they take down the driver's name and the bus company. So they, you know, I can thank him later. So once they're settled, they ended up, actually the kids all ended up in Germany. Uh, 18 hours later, they, they tried to locate the, the bus company and the driver. There was no information on the internet for the bus company and they could not find the bus driver. They looked on social media to try to thank him. So, you know, some people would say, ah, it's a coincidence. That's as close to a miracle as you can get. And then just the police showing up and saying, you got to get out of here right now because it was kind of a shoot first, ask questions later situation. There's like 10 of those in the book that are just, they're kind of paint peelers, you know, you just yeah. go, wow, that's so cool. In your media kit, it says what it is and what it is not. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about that? Maybe overlapping from what we talked about earlier. The book is an attempt to capture the voices of the people. You know, we wanted to give a voice to the Ukrainian people. We knew that by the time that this book released, and, and shout out to Baker Publishing Group, our publisher, because like I said, normally it's like a year is really fast. And they did it in five months, which is, is amazing with the book coming out here and just on September 6th. We wanted to get these stories stories out as quickly as possible. And so what it is, is, is just a reminder, hopefully, for people to pray for Ukraine and to do what they can with their time, their talents, and their treasure. We have a pretty fast news cycle here, and I get it. I'm not criticizing anybody. You go from Ukraine, and then that story sort of, you know, whatever news outlet you use to get your news, they started getting smaller and smaller, and the, and the news just moves on. You know, Supreme Court stuff or the economy or, or wildfires or whatever. It is. This war is still an acutely global threat to the global economy. Just militarily, it's, it's frightening. It has repercussions in China. You know, and China looks at Taiwan and there's saber rattling going on there. So, so hopefully what this is, is a gentle but pretty bracing reminder that we need to keep this conflict in our prayers. We need to pray for peace. We need to pray for Ukrainian people who are suffering in ways that I think 
few of us can even imagine. We're talking with Kyle Duncan, and he is the author of Hope for Ukraine, Stories of Grit and Grace from the Front Lines of War. He's also an adoptive parent of a child from there, which I think is just amazing that you would go there mm. and try to get these stories because it is it is your son's history. It is, and it's surreal to see the footage. Like I, I'm sure you will remember one of the major dramatic battles of this war has been this Avastol steelworks in Mariupol where like 3,000 people were held up underground and they were like the last holdouts in Mariupol. It was, I mean, really it was something out of a movie and I'm sure novels and movies will you know, be made about Avastol. Now those, those soldiers eventually surrendered, but just last week, the prison in which they're being held was bombed. And about 60 of those soldiers, like they haven't been through enough already, died. My point is, my, my son's orphanage, Lori, was about a half a mile from Avastol. So I have pictures on my phone from 07, happy days. And every day we drive by this huge steel factory. Oh, look at the steel factory. It's so interesting. It's gigantic. I've never seen anything like it here in the States. You know, just to see those photos, the before and afters. And then I even tried to call my son's orphanage and I couldn't get through. And I was looking on global satellite feeds and to try to figure out if that orphanage is still standing. And I don't know if it's even there still. It really does bring it down to a visceral level for my family and I. And it was just even more motivation to do this book of stories on real life people like you and me. A lot of them, especially in Kiev, they're upper middle class folks making good livings, engineers, computer techs, et cetera, have, abandoning everything. And uh, It's so hard to imagine. And I think what it's really easy to do is turn our head. Yeah. And so I think the fact that you have this connection and like for us here at the radio station, the teddy bear patrol, we know the impact these teddy bears have on kids that are traumatized. So when we bring awareness, then we have to look at it yeah. however we can, whether it's buying the book, whether it's donating money, but just the fact that knowing that we can say, oh, it's a war. And that sounds terrible, but I believe that it's more than that. And I'm sure you tell some heartfelt stories. I'm sure there's some difficult stories too. Yeah, there are. And I think you hit the nail on the head in that, and I've tried to be sensitive to that in that we are trauma and tragedy worn in this country with COVID and recession and gas prices and on and on, you know, and just the division. I mean, Thanksgivings and Christmases are tough for a lot of people because even around a dinner table, you can't talk. It seems like fewer and fewer subjects that we could all talk about without irritating our friends and family. So I get it. But yes, I think that humanizing a tragedy, it is hard to keep your eyes focused on it. Our hope and prayer for Hope, hope for Ukraine is that you know, it's opening a window and allowing them to actually be there. That was my goal as a writer, is to re read it so that people actually feel like they're there and experiencing being in that car that's getting shot at and the window's blown out with your two-year-old in a car seat and miraculously nobody getting hit. Because God said to you at that moment in time, even though it looked unsafe outside, you need to escape your village right now. And then a month later, that family... And the family I'm referring to, they fled to Poland. They heard from friends in their village, hey, look at this news piece that went 
International via CNN, and it showed the very same road that they escaped on. They were unscathed. An hour and a half later, same day, they dubbed it the road of death because 15 civilians were killed on it. Because at 2.30 in the afternoon, the husband said, I don't know why, but I just feel this overwhelming sense that God is telling me we have to leave right now. And the wife said, I think you're a little nuts. It's broad daylight. It's crazy, but I'll respect that. Let's go. And if they hadn't left then, in her email to me, she said, if I if we hadn't left, then I wouldn't be writing this email to you. I just snuck in a little, <laughs> another little Incredible. Story. I love it. I love it. Well, we have time for a couple more stories if you want to. There's a really cool one that has to do with average, you know, everyday Americans like you and I, and it is a gentleman who his name is Gail and he's friend of a friend and, and he worked at an American school outside of Kiev and Gail's from Chicago. So after about a month after, you know, things got kind of crazy with Kiev, you know, we didn't know if Russia was going to be able, and they failed of course to take Kiev. Now only God knows if they're going to try again at some point. But they failed, thank God. So it got safe there to travel and whatnot. So Gail ended up taking a train to Poland, and then he flew home to visit his family. And when he was there, he gathered a ton of supplies, Lori, like a couple of tons of supplies to be shipped over. And one of the things, one of the requests that people were getting inundated of, and these are refugees who were fleeing into Poland and other countries, and then turning around and going, what can we do to help people still stuck in Ukraine? Amazing. These people are traumatized, but their first thought is, what can I do to help? One of the things was uh, flak jackets, vests for the soldiers, because it's not like our army, which is has so much money and everybody's equipped with uh, flak jackets and bulletproof vests. So Gail reached out to some police agencies in the area and they said, yeah, we have like a five year warranty on these things. And then whether they're, I mean, they're perfectly good, but we have by law, we have to buy new ones. So here's a bunch of bulletproof vests that you can, we're just going to give them to you. So Gail had him flown over. He took one vest in particular. A Ukrainian friend's brother was fighting on the front lines outside of Ukraine. So they, they take that one single vest. It goes by microbus across the Polish border to the gray zone, which is that area. And I, I walked through the gray zone. It's just that area between the two borders of Poland and Ukraine. Met a bus driver there who had been taking refugees out of Ukraine and was heading back to Lviv, which is, you know, in the Western part of Ukraine, relatively safe city, took the vest there. From there, a car took it, a civilian, braving Russian troops and roadblocks, managed to get it across Ukraine to the Eastern side near Kiev and took it to a forward position, the unit of the Ukrainian friend's brother. The next day, the brother got the vest. Two days later, the friend gets a photograph of that vest. The soldier on the front line had removed the actual armor part. It like slips into like a, a cloth area in the front of your vest. He takes it out and it's a picture of, of the actual metal plate. It's completely dinged up with huge divots from shrapnel. And he said, if I hadn't been wearing this, I'd be dead. So it just shows how one person's effort to get a hold of one flak jacket can save one life. And I love that story because we can all do that. And just 50 bucks will get somebody, a soldier on the front line, a life-saving flak jacket, for example. I think it's really easy to be overwhelmed and feel like there's this ocean of need 
and say, there's nothing I can do, but there's always, like you say, one thing we can do. Absolutely. So buying the book, donating, what, what do you suggest? First of all, there's a resource section at the back of the book where people can give, but I would say first off organizations like Operation Blessing that was right on the border, Central World Kitchen, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, or Central World Kitchen, they were doing amazing work and doing thousands and thousands of meals. UNICEF, pick a, a good, reputable charity and just give up your treasure. People who have that need like are feeling audacious to actually travel over there. Yeah, there's there's more demand than there is supply. And, and people are just needed to, Poland's a great country to the front line of the, the aid transfer is in Krakow and Warsaw, and they need people. And they need people to come over and help them drive vans or help the refugees coming across the border. There are things that we can do. And even if it's only 10 or 20 bucks, I heard that 25 bucks buys buys a tourniquet. They're low on tourniquets. And so soldiers are bleeding out. So that's one example. Before we leave, what is it that you really want people to know? For me, and this comes through a little bit in the book, um, I try, as I said, not to inject my own personal beliefs, but for me personally... I really believe there is hope for Ukraine, but it's only something I think that that God can orchestrate because the situation looks so bleak. Russia's not, they're not stopping unless they're stopped. I think prayer, my heart is that we would be able to intercede on behalf of that country and that peace would come through a, a divine movement in whatever way it has to happen. And where can we get your book? Oh, you can pre-order it on your most popular book website. It's up on Amazon and other websites now and, and at your local retailers, hopefully. And yeah, it's it's available for pre-order online right now and it'll be available on September 6th. Hope for Ukraine, stories of grit and grace from the front lines of war by, I'm going to let you say her name, by Kyle Duncan and... Esther Federkevich, my co-author. Thank you so much. I'm a big uh, advocate of pre-ordering because you'll forget. So you pre-order it. All of a sudden it shows up and you're like, hey, is it on audio? That's funny you should ask. I just got an email today. I'm actually going to narrate it myself. So it will be on audio. The audio, I think, will come out in October. So you can pre-order your book now. Hope for Ukraine, stories of grit and grace from the front lines of war by Kyle Duncan. You can pre-order it today on Amazon and the author's proceeds will go to support Ukraine's refugees. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people who are making a difference.